All right. Hey, this is Justin, and I'm going to go ahead and shoot this a little more generically. Uh, I'm actually shooting this for someone in particular, but I'm probably going to use this online. Uh, so hopefully she'll forgive me if I keep this a little more generic. I'm also shooting this out of order. This is technically class number six in the RCA program that I put together. Um, however, I'm going to do this one first because I think it's the most important one. And here's why. Um, the Catholic Church makes a claim, and that claim is the Catholic Church is the church that Jesus founded. This is demonstrable from scripture, demonstrable from history, uh, logically provable, and everything else. And everything else hinges upon that, right? Um, so the, the church, if you can accept the church being who she says she is, and you see that it makes sense, um, then everything else kind of falls into place. Even if there's things you have questions about, I have a lot of students who'll say, well, I have questions about Mary or I have questions about the saints or I have questions about the Eucharist or, you know, whatever it happens to be. And that's fine. We can always tackle those, but all of those are in a sense secondary to whether or not the Catholic church is the church that Jesus founded one holy Catholic and apostolic. So um, this class along with class number seven kind of go tandem because class number seven is going to deal a lot with scripture and tradition and how they interplay and, and how scripture in fact is, it flows from tradition um, in a way that most people, including most modern Protestants, just simply don't understand. Um, so we will get to all that in the next class, but this class is just about the church itself. Um, I usually like to start with a question. Obviously, uh, I'm just a face, <laughs> a face on a video right now, so the question isn't going to be as impactful because I can't prompt you. Feel free to write down below uh, what you think the answer is. But, uh, you know, Jesus never said to write anything. And he didn't write anything. The only thing Jesus ever wrote um, he was, uh, brought a woman who was caught in adultery and they throw her down and say, you know, the law says we should stone her. What should we do? Cause you know, it was, it was against the law for them to actually carry out the law. And so they, the, the, the Pharisees at the time were trying to catch Jesus and, and either he was going to break Roman law, uh, or he was going to break Jewish law and he ignores them. He bends down and writes in the sand and we don't even know what he wrote. Uh, he might've doodled a picture. He might've, you know, there's so many things he could have done. All scripture tells us is he bent down and he drew in the sand and then, uh, of course, he gives them that famous line, you know, let you who was without the first sin or who's without sin cast the first stone. Right. And that really is telling of the very nature and understanding of Jesus, who he is, why he came. He came to bring love and peace in the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, and it's all summed up right there. The law, he's not invalidating it, uh, but he's also fulfilling it. Uh, you know, again, all of us sin, all of us shall fall short of, of the glory of God. And that's kind of what he is uh, getting at. Um, we will dis uh, discuss at least a little bit, uh, people in the church doing bad things. It does happen. Um, the church, uh, and th this, this will serve you well to understand that the church is a hospital for sinners, not yet a mansion for saints someday. With the, the church is called to be a mansion for saints, um, but everyone in the church happens to be a sinner. And the funny thing about sinners is they sin. Um, and then here's another question. Uh, why do you think so many people come to so many different interpretations of scripture? And is that a problem? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whoever comes to me will have eternal life. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And he says, I, I've come to you that you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Now, you cannot have two things that are completely contradictory be true at the same time in the same way, right? So you can't say Jesus is God and also he isn't God. Now you could say Jesus is fully God, but also fully man in a hypostatic union, which is what the church says about Jesus. Um, but you can't deny his humanity or deny his divinity without breaking something of what it means to be Jesus. 
what it means for God to become incarnate uh, and, and, and everything about what he did. Right. So here's a picture I like to share. This is a uh, Justin original uh, and I called a picture of church history. It was based off of another picture I had seen at some point, but this one uh, is a little bit more uh, to the point, right? So here you have, you know, zero AD. This is uh, about the time Jesus was born. So around 33 AD or so is, is when he was crucified and when, when the church began. And if you were to look through history, you can find, and I'll, I'll tip my cards right here. This middle line is the Catholic church. If you were to jump to 2000, we're at 2020 now, um, or 2019, but if you were to, to, to go back a hundred years or a hundred years or a hundred years or a hundred years, you would always find a church calling itself Catholic. Um, you would also find a bunch of other churches that do claim to follow what Jesus taught, but they cease to exist. Uh, oftentimes this big long line here that represents the Catholic church would call them heretical. You had people like the Donatists and the Gnostics and the Arians, this big long line line here might be the Arians. There was a very long and persistent heresy in the church, right? Um, and then around 1045 uh, or 54, rather, uh, we had a split in the church where the Orthodox churches all kind of broke off. And once they broke off, there was a little bit of fissuring and fracturing in some of them, but they kind of persisted. And in fact, we teach, uh, we believe that they are still um, successors of the apostles. They still have full apostolic succession. Their sacraments are all valid. Um, we really just differ essentially on the authority of the Bishop of Rome, um, the successor of Peter and whether he has primacy. And we're going to talk about that a lot in this one. So if that doesn't make sense, then don't worry about it. And then of course, right here, uh, we have, uh, the, the Protestant Reformation beginning with Martin Luther in, uh, 1517 or so. And then you just kept seeing this fracturing and fracturing and fissuring, uh, of what it meant to be a Christian. And to today I'm told that there are 30,000 denominations. And honestly, I, I, I find that number hard to believe. And so I'm always willing to, to cut it off by an order of 10, right? So if there were, you know, 30,000 different denominations, I think what they're doing is they're taking all the different non-denominational churches because there is no set core of beliefs. Uh, but I think most of those could probably be smushed together and, and, and would believe generally similar things. So even if that number was off, by an order of 10 and it was only 3000 or even if it was off by an order of a hundred and um, there were 300 different denominations, that's still 300 different groups of people. Even if it was off by a thousand, that's still 30 different groups of people saying, this is the truth. No, this is the truth. And if it's the truth that's going to set us free, we have to have a way to know what that truth is. Um, so this whole thing right here is actually poking fun at in a sense, in kind of a lighthearted way. Um, the modern mindset of a lot of people who start churches uh, and they say, well, everything here was wrong. And then we finally, you know, our denomination was formed and we finally got the Bible right. And of course, uh, a lot of people nowadays are, they, they would call themselves non-denominationalists. Um, and if you look at all these different denominations that arose, they arose because they took as their litmus test, um, their, their proof of truth, uh, a concept called sola scriptura or uh, scripture only. We'll talk a lot more about that in class seven. Um, but I always like to joke, if you look, you know, uh, you'll always find the Catholic Church in every single century, all the way up to the very first century. I'll even give you some quotes from bishops in the first century calling the church Catholic, bishops who believed in the Eucharist and, and everything else. And so I always joke that we're pre-denominational. So, um, so let's just jump right into this. Uh, again, these notes should be down below if you want to follow along. I'll try to remember to put a link to these down below the video. Um, these are my notes. I made them myself. Uh, any errors or typos are totally on me. <laughs> Uh, but hopefully you find them helpful. So what is the church? The church is primarily a body of believers. Um, church in scripture is called ecclesia uh, in Greek, and it just means those who have been called 
out. Um, primarily, it doesn't refer to a building, but it does refer to people. You are the body of Christ and members of it individually, as St. Paul says in First uh, Corinthians. So the church is primarily the grouping of people, and we make up the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Uh, it's made up of people... Uh, who follow Christ, they seek to serve him in their life, uh, and they are the body of Christ. He says this in, in Colossians 1. Um, he gives, uh, Paul gives an analogy of marriage a couple different places. Uh, he says Christ is the head of the church uh, in an analogous way to the way that the husband is the head of the family. In fact, Christ is called the bridegroom often, uh, and the church is the bride, his spotless bride. We actually see that at the very end of the book of Revelation. Uh, we see the wedding feast of the Lamb, which is, of course, uh, Jesus himself. And so, um, written into our very core. And this is something I talk about a lot in the early classes, how, you know, in the beginning, God makes man male and female. And that is actually an image of the Trinity uh, because the two become one flesh and from them, from their love, life uh, issues forth. Right. Um, and so all of that is pointing towards Christ. And now we see all of that fulfilled. Right. Uh, now, different people in the church do have different jobs uh, and different roles and different authority. And so you'll see in Ephesians, let me just pull these up really quickly here. Uh, I'm going to do this quick style. Right. Uh, so <laughs> Ephesians here, this is the NIV version. I don't really care which version I'm looking at for the most part. Um Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ could be built up until we all reach uh, unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure and fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by every cunning and craftiness of the people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking in truth and love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ from him the whole body joined together and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as does each part as each part does its work so there we see you know the church uh, he gave to the church people in various roles, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Um, you'll find slightly different versions or, or different translations of this. Um, I generally use the New American, um, which I don't remember if they have here, NAB. Uh, this is the one, this is the official church uh translation, but I also like the revised RSV, revised standard version. Uh, but they're all going to say basically the same thing. Um, so again, though we're all many in number, we are all part of the one body. And I usually have a handout that I give out with this one. I'm not going to worry about that right now. I might come back. Anyway, um, the church is also called by St. Paul, the pillar and foundation of the truth. He says that in first Timothy three fifteen, Um, and I think that tells us something very telling, you know, that is what the church is here for. It is here to be the foundation of the truth to help us, uh, so that we can not be tossed around, uh, as Ephesians said, right. Tossed around, um, like, uh, children unable to, to, to know what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false, deceived by, by every sly cunning and trickery of, of human beings. Cause remember the, the thing about the Bible is, and we'll talk a lot about this in the next class is it's just text in a sense, right? I mean, obviously it is inspired by God. It's infallible, everything else, but at the end of the day, it's just text and text can be misconstrued and twisted. Remember when Jesus goes to the desert for 40 days, the devil appears to him and tempts him. And what does the devil tempt him with? What's scripture? So you better believe the devil knows his scripture and you better believe the devil can use scripture to his own ends. So just the fact that you have uh, the Bible itself does not in any way guarantee uh, that you have a correct understanding. We'll talk a lot more about that again next class. Um, some people say, well, you know, the church is called Catholic. Uh, we call it Catholic. This is a Greek, Greek term. 
And that word, uh, means universal. Uh, it comes from the, from the Greek term katalikos. And this is a testament to the very nature of the, the church, right? Uh, the early church called itself Catholic. It called itself universal because it understood its, its role in, in history. Um, I don't have it on me right now. Uh, but I talked, uh, when I talk about salvation history, we see how God, um, after the fall of man, promises to bring reconciliation to the world. He promises um, to the woman that proto-evangelium in Genesis 3, uh, 16 through 15, um, what enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and yours, you will strike at his head uh, or his heel, or he will crush your head, he says to the serpent. Uh, and that's God promising that serpent we know is the devil, the, the ancient serpent uh, in Genesis, or sorry, in, in Revelation, he's the, the dragon and we're told he's that ancient serpent that deceived the whole world. When the whole world was bound up in Adam and Eve. And so it was promised all the way back then uh, that God was going to bring about reconciliation. Now, he did it in his own way, and he started with a particular small group of people. In fact, the very first covenant, he did it through a series of covenants, and the very first covenant was uh, a covenant with just two people, Adam and Eve. Um, and it was kind of an implicit covenant. Uh, they lived in, in paradise. But after that, we had, uh, from Adam and Eve, we had Noah and his family. Uh, so we get to a little bit bigger. Uh, and God uses, this is Genesis 9-ish or so, he uses the word covenant, 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 like all over the Genesis 9, if you read it. That's what the whole rainbow thing is, right? It's a sign of the covenant. Um, we get bigger to a tribe uh, from from Noah to Abraham uh, and his descendants. Uh, and he uses the word covenant repeatedly. Um, again, we'll talk about this when I have the class on, it's like class three or four about salvation history. <laughs> we'll get to that. Um and then after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have no, uh, uh, Moses and the, the nation of Israel, right? And God very clearly establishes a covenant with them as well. Uh, and then, of course, we have uh, an implicit covenant with uh, David. We have the kingdom. So we go from a, a couple to a family to a tribe to a nation to a kingdom. We're getting bigger and bigger in scope. And, and all this time, God has kept his people, Israel, separate. And he does this for a reason. Right? He does because he wants to show his power amidst the world. And what better place, what better way, what better people? to show your power with than a bunch of people who are kind of a ragtag group of, of individuals oppressed by everyone around them. They get thrown into slavery repeatedly. They get defeated militarily over and over again, but God promises he will keep that people around. And the, the proof of this I mentioned is usually in the very first class we have. Uh, one of the reasons uh, why I think faith is, is very reasonable is this. You have so many massive countries and nations, the Greeks, the Assyrians, the Phoenicians, the Romans, uh, all the way up to modern day. You've got the, the communists and you've got the, the Nazis, you know, these massive organizations of people that at one point dedicated themselves to eradicating the Jews and none of them exist. We don't have Nazis. We don't have Phoenicians. We don't have Egyptians in the sense of like the Pharaohs. I mean, obviously the land mass is still there, um, but there are not Egyptian Pharaohs, uh, right? The, the Kings of, of the Pharaohs, the Phoenicians, the Greeks, the, the Romans, they're all gone, but the Jews are still here. And God made that promise to Abraham that he would keep them around. So when we get to Jesus, um, we see, uh, and, and I, I I talk about this again when we talk about Jesus, but he, he says he comes to bring that new and everlasting covenant. He gives us that at the Last Supper. The only time he ever mentions the new covenant or the blood of the covenant is at the Last Supper, uh, the new and everlasting covenant. And he's still dealing with a bunch of Jewish people, but he sends them out. And, and the very first thing they do is they realize that their calling is for more than just the Jewish people. Uh, multiple times in his ministry, Jesus includes uh, Gentiles or, or non, non-Jewish non believers in his miracles and the works he does. And of course, uh, Peter very actively in, in Acts, as well as St. Paul, who becomes the official apostle to the Gentiles, right? To, to the non-Jewish people. Um, 
they understand that their mission is to bring everyone in. So their mission is universal. So that's why the church is called Catholic. And this is a word that the church has self-applied since the very first century. I'll show you that down below. Um, so why don't we just call it Christian? Well, there's no problem calling it Christian. In fact, St. Peter calls the church Christian at one point in the scriptures. So it's a great word to use. However, what I find interesting is that um, it, the church was called Christian in, the, in, in Antioch. Um, in fact, if you read, this is Acts, uh, Acts five-ish, I think it is. Um, Acts five tells us that it was in Antioch that, uh, the church was first called, uh, Christian, but it was called Christian by the Jews and they did it because they wanted to separate themselves out from these followers of this crucified Jewish carpenter, right? They didn't want to have anything to do with, with, with uh, these Christians, these followers of this, this anointed Messiah. Uh, and so the term Christian was used initially, it's a Greek term, but it was used initially to speak of those who follow Jesus, the Christ, the, the, the Messiah, the anointed. That's what Christ means, uh, is anointed. Um, and so it was kind of applied outside, uh, in Antioch. Uh, and again, that's what's, uh, recorded in, in Acts, uh, five. But what's really interesting again is, uh, here's, here's a letter from St. Bishop, St. Ignatius. He was the Bishop of Antioch. He was actually captured and on his way to Rome to be fed to the lions. And he was in the middle of, of, of his way there. And he was still writing letters to people and saying, you don't need to fight and rescue me. I'm willing to, to be martyred for the faith. Um, he says this, let no one do anything of concern. This is from 100 AD, give or take, 110 AD. Let no one do anything of concern to the church without the bishop. Let that one be considered a valid Eucharist that is celebrated by the bishop or one he ordains, a priest, a presbyter. Uh, wherever the bishop appears, let the people be there, just as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic church. And he uses this phrase Catholic church in a way that tells you he believes that he's not coining a term. He's not like, I'm going to call this thing the Catholic church. He's just using it in, in vernacular, in parlance, in just common speech. He's just throwing it out there, right? Uh, wherever Jesus is, there's the Catholic church. He's saying it like he, he's assuming clearly his readers are going to know what he's speaking about, right? So we see that the, the term Catholic is actually a very apt word uh, or description of the church, which is why for 2000 years, essentially, uh, the church has called itself the Catholic church. Um, so hopefully that makes sense. We see a lot of things. Jesus actually does a lot of things. He summons 12 to himself um, and he gives Jesus gives the church authority. We, we want to talk about the authority of the church, right? And so we see in a way that kind of parallels what Moses does, because Moses was the greatest of the prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus does a lot of things that kind of mimic what Moses does. And one of those things is he anoints his 12. Uh, in fact, I love this passage in Matthew uh, 9 and Matthew 10. So we're just going to go jump over here. Um, we'll pull it up. And I'm going to jump over to the, the RSV. Oops, where'd it go? I just saw it. RSV CE, new revised standard. Uh, oh, I scrolled too far. Hang on a second. <laughs> I'll pause you. Anyway, uh, so one of the things to bear in mind when you're reading the scripture also is note that all these numbers, are, the paragraph numbers and the verse numbers, they're not original to the text. Those were added much later. This would have just been a big, long uh, script, right? This would have been a big, long discussion. And so here you have uh, this discussion here, and it rolls into his calling of the 12. So I'm going to read this little chunk right here. Jesus went to all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every infirmity. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore 
that the Lord of the harvest to send out new laborers into his harvest. And then he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits. This is the beginning of, of chapter 10. So oftentimes you'll, you'll read and you'll get here and you'll stop. And then you start here and you're like, oh, this is a new thing, totally unconnected. But no, this is literally the next thing he does. He calls his 12 to him and he gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal diseases. And the names of the 12 of these first Simon called Peter. And you'll notice Peter is always listed first. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And his brother, Andrew, uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, uh, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaan, and uh, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Judas is always incidentally listed last, uh, and for good reason, right? Uh, Jesus sent these 12 out, charging them to go amongst, initially not amongst the, the Gentiles, uh, and, and neither the Samaritans, but of course, over time, he uh, incorporates them into what he's doing as well. Uh, but it was prophesied that they would preach to the Israelites first. He would preach to the nation first, and then uh, he would preach to the world. So he's literally giving them uh, explanation on, on how to do all that, right? Let's see here. Uh, so he gives them that authority. He also gives them authority to forgive sins. We talked about this a little bit when we talked about confession, um, which you may have not gotten to, depending on when you're actually watching this video. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and pull this up. This is from John 20, 20, um, right about here. Uh, so this is after Jesus has died and, and uh, re resurrected. Uh, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the door is being locked. Uh, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood amongst them. So somehow he gets in through throughout the door <laughs> and he says, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his sides uh, and the disciples were glad and they saw that it was the Lord. And Jesus said to them, peace be with you as the father sent me. So I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Whoever sins you forgive are forgiven. Whoever's sins you retain are retained. Now it's important to bear in mind. We'll talk. We talked about this. Well, we will talk about it. We talk about confession. This isn't for everybody. This is just for his 12. And of course, giving them the ability to forgive sins as well as the ability to retain sins means they have to know what those sins are, which literally is the, the direct implication of this is, is the sacrament of confession as, as we have uh, had it passed down to us from the very early centuries on. Um, so he gives the church a share in that ministry of reconciliation. As he says, as the father sent me, so I sent you. Why did the father send Jesus? But to reconcile the world to himself. Um, he also gives the church the authority to bind and loose. We see this in Matthew. Uh, so we'll pull that up really quickly here. Um, you know what I should do? Type that in because I'll bet it will give me that every time. Oh, that works too. Uh, this is actually the USCCB, the United States, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, USCCB.org. You'll find good, good, uh, good media and stuff here as well. Um, so we're going to jump down here. Uh, Jesus says, this isn't a question of a brother sinning. He says, go and tell him your fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you won your brother over. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others so you can have witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. Uh, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Amen, I say to you, and he's speaking to his 12 here. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Um, and so, he, again, he's giving his 12 authority. And this authority is, is, is a juridical authority to make... Um, uh, both in connection with forgiveness, uh, the forgiveness of sins, but also to make binding decrees uh, upon the people. We'll dig in, we're going to dig into this a lot here in just a minute. I'm just kind of laying down the, the groundwork of the foundation right now. Uh, and of course, we know that the apostles are the foundation of the kingdom. So we see in Revelation 21, um, the heavenly Jerusalem is uh, appears. And so he carried me away in the spirit to great mountain. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And then that's going to make me go slow here. 
the walls of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So literally uh, in, in this image, this vision that John is given that becomes the book of Revelation, uh, the apostles are the foundation of the heavenly city, uh, which is the, you know, the, the kingdom of God. So. So Jesus gives us authority to his 12. He's very clearly setting up um, some sort of a hierarchy, right? Uh, he sees this as a good thing, and it, it flows very logically from what the Jews would have been expecting. Uh, they had a, a hierarchy as well. However, to one apostle, he gives more authority. Uh, to one of them, Peter, Simon Peter, uh, he gives first off a new name. Uh, and we see this in a couple places. So we see this in Matthew 16. We also see this in John 1. Um Let's see, Matthew 16 to 19. Um, and then while I'm also pulling these up, I'm going to pull up this John 1, 42. Just to kind of underscore another point here. Uh, so in, in, oops, where are we? Got too many tabs open already. <laughs> There we go. Um, so the Pharisees and Sadducees um, had left Jesus, and he's talking to his disciples uh, about them. And at one point, he asked them a question. Um, Jesus, when he came to, to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? That's a title for Jesus, the Son of Man. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the powers of death shall not prevail against it or the gates of hell will not prevail against it, depending upon your translation. Uh, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So this is a very powerful uh, section. And what we actually see here is, is Jesus giving a blessing to Simon, uh, giving him a new name. And it's a threefold blessing. And each part of this blessing has two parts, um, the blessing part and the part that it explains, right? So he tells Simon that he's blessed. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Simon Bar, Bar is a, is a, is an early century way of saying uh, son of that's a, a Hebrew, uh, or Aramaic expression. It means the son of, um, which is funny. There's a guy in scripture called Bar Timaeus, also known as Bar Timaeus. Or his name is Timaeus, son of Bar, Bar Timaeus, also known as the son of Timaeus. So literally his name is son of Timaeus, no matter how you look at it. He's a man who's so poor, he can't even afford his own name. <laughs> anyway, so Jesus says to Simon, blessed are you for you've received um, uh, a revelation from heaven, right? So that's the first First part of the blessing, blessed are you for you've received knowledge from heaven. Flesh and blood does not reveal this to you, my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. Why? Because upon this rock, I will build my church and the powers of death and hell will not prevail against it. Rock in, in Greek, Petros means rock. So Jesus is changing Simon's name. His name is Simon Barjona. He's changing his name here to Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not prevail against it. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So now he's giving him these keys and he's explaining what they do. So what are we supposed to make of this, right? How do we, how do we understand 
this whole section, right? Well, first off, Jesus is promising to Peter. Uh, he's explaining the name that he's given him. And the name he gives him is Peter, which again means uh, rock. And this is really interesting. If you, if you jump back all the way to the beginning of John, John uh, tells us that uh, Andrew meets Jesus and says, and he brought him to Jesus. So he brought his brother Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, son of Jonah. You will be called Cephas. This is, uh, I'll talk about that in a minute, which is translated Peter. I love that John gives us the translation. So remember, Jesus spoke Aramaic. The New Testament is written in Greek and John knows this. And so he's giving us Greek words, but then translating them for uh, those of us who are listening so we can understand what they mean. And so the the name that Jesus gives Peter is, or gives Simon is Peter and Peter means rock. And initially this would have been like, well, why are you calling him that? Right. Why does John tell us this? Why does Jesus tell us this? Right. When he meets Peter, cause there's, there's not a real connection. It's only much later that, that he gives us that explanation, but Jesus does give that explanation. He says, you are Peter um, for, for you've received this revelation from heaven. I'm going to build my church on you. You're going to be the foundational rock. You're going to be the firm foundation of my church. I give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And, um, there's a couple things you can point out here. Uh, the, the word for, for rock is Petros or Petra. Um, technically, Petra means a big boulder. Petros is a term that could mean a, a smaller stone or pebble. So some people raise a claim here and they say, well, what Jesus is really saying when he says to Simon, you are Petros, which means a little rock uh, right here, uh, but I will build my church upon and I'll build my church upon you. Um, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Petra, you are Petros, and upon this Petra I will build my church. So some people would say, well, what Jesus is doing there, he's actually saying, well, Simon, you're not very important. There's a couple of reasons that doesn't make any sense. Uh, one of the main reasons is, of course, this is a threefold blessing. So it's like, blessed are you, you insignificant little person. I'm going to give you this great honor. It doesn't even flow. It doesn't make a lot of sense, right? But also, uh, in English, we don't have gender in our language the way that they do in other languages, including Greek, uh, which has uh, masculine, feminine uh, and, uh, neuter as well, which is non-gendered. And the word rock Petra is feminine. So if Jesus changed his name to Petra, uh, they would have been like calling him Mrs. Rock. So all Jesus is doing is he's changing his name to Petros. And the way we can know what he's intending is when we read back here in John, because Jesus calls him Cephas. Now Cephas, if you take the Aramaic, it's Kepha, K-E-P-H-A. If you were to take that word and turn it into Greek, you would get Kephos, uh, the way this, and then if you were to take Greek and turn it into English, you would get Cephas, which looks like this. So this is a transliteration of Aramaic into Greek into English, which is why you see this. Um, the actual way, if you were to rip it directly from Aramaic, K-E-P-H-A is what it would look like. Um, and actually, I love that term so much. I named my firstborn son Kepha, um, because that is the actual name that, that Jesus gives Peter. In fact, as a total aside, if you ever get a chance to watch um, The Passion of the Christ, uh, which is that movie, it's, it's hard to watch, but it's a great Linton watch. Uh, it's that movie by Mel Gibson. You'll find uh, that uh, whenever Jesus speaks to Peter in that, because uh, Er... um Mel Gibson wanted to make it as authentic as possible. He he actually had him speaking the ancient languages. So whenever he's speaking to Peter, he says, Kepha, Kepha, Kepha. So literally that's, that's Jesus' name. And here's what we know about Aramaic. Um, if Jesus wanted to call Peter a little pebble, he would have called him Evna. So again, in, in English, just like E-V-N-A essentially is what that would look like. Um, so rather than calling Simon Peter, he would probably would have called something like Simon Evan. Um, and that would have been, you know, he's just this insignificant little pebble or insignificant little stone or whatever. Um, but literally Jesus calls him uh, Kepha, 
which means a big, firm rock. And so right here, John helps us to understand what Jesus means in Matthew 16, when he's calling him, you are the rock, and upon this rock I build my church. Also, in English, we don't think of Peter as meaning rock, but that's what it means. If, if you were in French, rock is Pierre, uh, and Peter is also Pierre. Uh, so in a lot of other languages, uh, especially in Greek, uh, this is, you are rock, and upon this rock I build my church. English is a little funny, because we treat the name Peter as a name, and not as the term for rock. Uh, you'll find it in medicines, sometimes we'll talk about what's called like salt Peter, uh, which is like rock salt or whatever. Um, but other than that, it, using Peter for the word rock in English is a little obscure. So it's important, I think, to, uh, to, to mention that as well. So, um, so he gives Peter a name and he promises he's going to build his church on this Simon, son of Jonah, this Peter, uh, who he now gives a name and explains the name to. And then he gives the keys to the kingdom. And this is crucial, right? Um, this actually rep um, references something that was a very common thing in the Old Testament. I'm going to pull up uh, Isaiah 20, uh, 22 here. Uh, and this is a defrocking ceremony. Um, so in, in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Covenant, especially under, under David, uh, the king's job was to be away fighting for the advancement and protection of his people, right? That was his job. In fact, the, the time that David wasn't doing that, he was hanging out on the rooftops, he got in trouble, right? He looks down, sees a pretty girl, uh, it's Bathsheba, and he winds up falling into sin, falling into adultery, um, and getting, you know, Uriah, her, her husband, uh, killed in the, in the battle line so he can take Bathsheba as his own wife, right? Uh, so literally the one time David wasn't doing that, uh, he, he got himself in trouble. Well, that was the job of the king. And in the king's stead, he left ministers. And this just makes sense. We do this even today, right? The president has his cabinet, uh, and, and not just the cabinet, but I mean, he has advisors and he has people that run the, the government for him and with him. He's just the executive. The president is a really good example because he's not a king. Um, but you know, a king would have ministers and the king would often have so many ministers that when he was away, sometimes there would be a discussion or a question about what was supposed to happen or what made the most sense or, you know, they, they couldn't come to a decision. So to one of those ministers, he would give special authority and that authority was symbolized by a key, a key to the kingdom. We think of keys, I don't have mine on me actually right now, but we have keys all around us all the time. We don't think of keys as being anything very special, but the thing is keys back then, it was a very intentional act. Most doors didn't have locks. You could lock them from the inside with a bar, um, but most doors didn't have locks in the way that we think of as lock because a key was a very special, uh, specialized thing that most people didn't have money to afford. Um, and so keys were only there for, for the, the wealthy, right? It was something that was less uh, prevalent than it is today. Nowadays, you might have 20 keys in your pocket. But back then, a key meant something very, very special. So the, the kingdom, uh, the, the, the king giving the, the key to the kingdom to one man would signify this man was the prime minister. Uh, so amongst all the ministers, he is the, the greatest of, of those ministers. Because only one key would get the, or one, one minister, one, um, pull this up a little bit bigger here. Only one uh, of those ministers would get it. And that would be the prime minister. Um, I don't really care which version we're looking at. This is the NIV again. That's fine. So if we come down here, this is a defrocking ceremony. And G the God is saying that he's not happy with Shebna, um, the palace administrator, the, the, the prime minister. Uh, and he basically says, you know, what are you doing here? Who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here? Um, the Lord is going to take firm. He'll throw you out. Um, and there you will die a disgrace from your family. And he says, in that day, I will summon my sermon alike in the son of Hilkiah. So he's basically saying, I'm going to pass your office on. I will clothe him with your robe and I will fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live 
in Jerusalem and the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. Whatever he opens, no one can shut. Whatever he shuts, no one can open. I will fix him like a fir- like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a seat of honor for his father. Right? Uh, so what does that sound like? That harkens right back to this discussion of Jesus giving Peter the keys to the kingdom and saying, whatever you bind will be on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven, right? Um, that's powerful. If you were a first century Jew and you, even if you didn't think Jesus was who he said he was, if you thought he was a crackpot, right? But you hear this first century Jewish man tell another man, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. You would know, hey, this crazy guy is making that guy his prime minister of his crazy kingdom, or whatever it happens to be. Now, of course, we don't believe that Jesus was crazy. Um, but, I mean, even if you didn't believe him, you would understand from a Jewish perspective what he was doing. He was setting up a kingdom, and, and he was establishing his prime minister amongst all of his other ministers. So this this passage right here, Matthew 16, uh, verses 13 to, to 20, or 13 to 19, is one of the crucial texts to understand when we understand uh, that Jesus gave authority to his apostles and to one apostle who gave a pre preeminent authority. Now, this binding and loosing authority, how do we understand that? A couple different ways. Um, Again, in one sense, what it means, it's not that they can change heaven, because he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's more of of an authority that says, I'm not going to let you teach wrong. And Jesus will promise his Holy Spirit to guide the church uh, in John 14 and John 16. We'll talk about that as well. Uh, to guide them into remembrance of all things, to guide them into all truth, uh, so that they're not teaching error. Because again, the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. That's what this all comes back to. So Jesus is giving us a body. Um, he's giving a, a functional part to his body that can safeguard the truth and pass on that truth and do it in perpetuity. Uh, and in fact, if we go back to Isaiah, bear in mind, this is an office, right? So the, if, if, uh, Hilkiah or Shebna hadn't, um, hadn't transgressed the way he had, then he might've died and maybe his son would have taken over. Someone else would have taken over. But the point is the office exists beyond the office holder. Uh, and so too, the office of the apostles are unique because they were with Jesus, but their offices were nevertheless passed on. The first person to hold that office, of course, has kind of a preeminent just honor. But at the end of the day, the, the authority is meant to, to, to pass on. And we actually see this very clearly because the very first thing the apostles do, if you look at Acts chapter one, uh, right after Jesus ascends in heaven, they, the angels say, go to Jerusalem and await the Holy Spirit. The very first thing they do is they elect a successor to Judas because they said, you know, let another one take his office. Literally, that's the word. Let another one take his office. Another one should take his office. So literally, these positions were positions that were meant to be passed on. Incidentally, uh, there's two different people uh, who uh, are up for that position, uh, taking over for Judas and it falls the cast lots and it falls to a guy named Matthias. And so he's the first apostolic successor. I love that so much. I actually named my son Kepha. His middle name is Matthias, uh, Kepha Matthias. So, uh, the first Pope and the first apostolic successor, uh, just a little bit of personal trivia there. <laughs> I think he's a very unique name. Very few people have a name like that. So, um, so Jesus is the Davidic king, and he is giving the keys to the kingdom uh, to uh, one of his 12. He gives the authority to bind and loose to all 12 of them. So they're all ministers, but to one of them, he gives that preeminent authority. Um, 
Peter's successors, uh, we call them the Pope. It's just a Latin word that means Papa. Um, you know, we call priests father as well. It's a sign of honor. Uh, oftentimes people raise a question, so I put it in here really quickly. Uh, you know, Jesus says, call no man father in, in Matthew 29. There's a couple things you could, you could say to that because people say, well, why do you Catholics do that? Aren't you disobeying Jesus? Well, first off, no. Uh, Jesus didn't, didn't say call, um, uh, he says, call no man father. He also says, call no man teacher, call no man master. We use the word teacher. Doctor is a Latin word that means teacher. Mister is a word that means means master, right? And what he's trying to fight is people giving a preeminent spiritual authority to people. Uh, Jesus himself uh, speaks of Father Abraham. Um, Stephen calls Abraham his father. Paul calls Isaac his father. And Paul actually says uh, that he became a father. Paul was a celibate. He's very clear about this. You read 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, but he claims to be a father through the gospel. Uh, Peter does the same thing. So did John. They speak, you know, my son, my son, my son, uh, our sons and daughters. Um, and, and, and so literally we know if we, if we gave up the word father for anyone but God, it would quickly lose its meaning. It would just be like using the word God, right? And God reveals himself to us as a father for a reason, right? So there's nothing inherently wrong with speaking of priests as our spiritual fathers because they do take on a role like that as long as we understand that they are not our spiritual father in the way that God is our spiritual father, right? Um, so going back to Peter here. So the Pope is very special because of Peter, who was very special. Peter is always listed first amongst the apostles. Again, Judas is always listed last. Uh, if you were to look at the names of the apostles as they appear in scripture, Peter is mentioned 191 times. The next most common apostle is St. John, uh, the beloved disciple, who is mentioned only 40 times. So literally, uh, Peter is mentioned uh, over five times uh, or over four times more, almost five times more than the next most common disciple, who is uh, John. He's often mentioned very uniquely uh in fact the the women see jesus resurrected and they go and the words out of their mouth is jesus has resurrected and appeared to peter or appeared to simon um Peter alone is given the keys to the kingdom, though again, the other 11 are given the uh, binding and loosing authority. Peter alone is given a new name and a promise that the church will be built upon him. Uh, it does seem that uh, James and John had uh, some sort of kind of a pet name, the Zebed or um, Bonargis, which is, uh, it means the sons of thunder. I think it's because they were loud and boisterous, uh, but you don't see them actually called by that. But Peter literally is called Peter all over the place, right? That's why we know him as Peter, St. Peter. And uh, Peter alone is told by Christ he would pray for him particularly. This is at the Last Supper in Luke 22. Uh, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift all of you, but I have prayed for your faith. This is particular or singular that it may not fail. And when you've turned back, because he knew that Simon was about to deny him three times, strengthen your brothers. So Simon is actually even given a very specific prayer by Jesus to be the one uh, that he prays for that his faith may not fail and that he should uh, turn back. And, and when he turns back, uh, he should strengthen his brothers. Right. Um, and there's so many other examples. I don't know if these links still work or not. You're welcome to try them out. Um, we'll just click them and see. Uh, there's like 300 biblical there we go. Uh, no, I don't think it's still there anymore. Shoot. I'll find it. Uh, I know it's on here. I think he just redid his website years ago. I mean, I've, these, these notes are from 15 years ago or whatever. Um, so obviously some of the links aren't going to be, uh, 2007. So yeah, what is that? Uh, 12 years ago. Um, and P Peter is specifically charged with feeding Christ's sheep three times. Again, Peter denies Jesus three times, proving, uh, that even the Pope can, can sin, right? <laughs> he can fall to even to personal heresy. He denies, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Right. Uh, but of course, Jesus appears to him at the end of John's gospel and asks him three different times, Peter, do you love me more than these? 
then feed my sheep. Lord, you know I love you. Of course I love you. Yes, him three different times. And Peter gets more and more exasperated each time. But he gives Peter the chance, a threefold chance to repent and to profess his following of Jesus uh, to make up for his three threefold denial. Um, so we understand the church as having um, authority. And that authority is there to help us. It, it's, it's a functional thing to keep us on the right path. Jesus says, he gives a parable of the church. He says, like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each one his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. And he says, watch, therefore, if you don't know when the master of the house is coming at evening, midnight, or the crowing of the rooster in the morning. But the point is, he's a man who gave his house to another to to watch over it, to, to shepherds, to uh, protect his his house, right? So that is literally a parable of uh, of the church, right? And again, like a king who's off fighting his kingdom, uh, who leaves uh, stewards uh, in place to to guard his kingdom. Uh, now, it's important to note certain uh, people in the church that even though the church can teach infallibly, so what we mean by infallible is um, unable to teach in matters of faith and morals inerrant, right? So the church couldn't teach uh, something that was untrue about Jesus or something that was untrue about morality, Right. That's that's their purview. That's what God has promised uh, through the Holy Spirit. Um, but it doesn't mean that everyone in the church is a good person. There have actually been popes who have been scoundrels as well as priests who have done terrible things. A lot of that's been in the news. Um, and it's something that we as Catholics have to take very seriously. Right now, there's lots of things that could be said about these. I don't want to really have a big, long discussion. If you look at it statistically, the, the rates of priests who were abusers in the most recent scandal was no higher than the general population. It was actually lower than the general population. It was even lower uh, by some accounts than the population of uh, Protestant pastors who've also had the same. Uh, same sorts of issues. But of course, uh, when a Baptist pastor goes awry, they can just fire the pastor, whereas once a priest, always a priest. So we're kind of stuck with them. We're a much more visible target in a country that is in its root, in its heart, very Protestant. And so a little distrusting still of Catholics. Um, so that's kind of one of the reasons that that whole thing blew up the way that it did. It's not that it's a bigger scandal than other places. I mean, it's a terrible scandal. It's a terrible thing. And I'm not trying to downplay that at all. Um, but there's a lot of other factors that exacerbated the level of that scandal as opposed to other comparable scandals, if that makes sense. Um, David respected King Saul, even when King Saul turned wicked. There's a lot of different times uh, where we see this a couple times. Uh, Saul would attack David uh, or, and David would, would be given power over Saul's life. And he would say multiple times, you know, I would not lift a, a finger to, to strike down the Lord's anointed because Saul had been anointed as, uh, as, as, uh, as the King, even though David had also been anointed as the King, but David's like, I wouldn't lift a finger to, to harm the Lord's anointed. In fact, at one point uh, he stabs a spear in above Saul's head when Saul's asleep at night and he cuts off one of his tassels and he regrets even doing that. Right. So David respected, uh, Saul's authority. Uh, Caiaphas was one of the high priests who sought to kill Jesus. He was the high priest. Uh, and he was, even though in, in the very act of sinning, let me pull this one up. He's in the very act of declaring, uh, death to Jesus. And in doing so, uh, he, he fulfills his role as, um, as the high priest, he actually prophecies, and John even tells us this, right? Um, the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they ask? Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go like this, uh, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And one of them 
Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said, you know nothing. You do not realize it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. And then John tells us he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. There's that, that universal ministry of the church right there. But literally in the process of condemning Jesus to death, he is uttering a, a prophecy. That's powerful. That's how God works. That's how the Holy Spirit works, right? So even though uh, he was seeking to kill Jesus, he was still able to exercise that power of prophecy. Jesus speaks in Matthew 23, of the scribes and the Pharisees sitting on the seat of Moses, which was these, this judgment, uh, this, this position of authority. Uh, and he says, you know, listen to them when they give you teachings because the, they still occupy this territory, even though he's in the process of, of establishing a new covenant uh, and, and appointing his 12 to replace them. But nevertheless, they had some authority. So listen to them, but don't do as they do, he says. Um and Jesus gives us a parable about putting new wine into into new wineskins. Uh, and he says, you wouldn't put new wine into old wineskins because they would burst. Wine ferments, it gives off gas. So if you had um, a wineskin, would be like the, skim, the, the stomach or bladder of an animal, uh, which is usually pretty stretchy, which is why we need to go to the bathroom. You know, you have degrees of how much you need to go to the bathroom as your bladder fills up. Um, it's the same way with animals. And so they would actually pour new wine into, into a wineskin. They'd seal it up. And then as it fermented, it would give off the gases and it would stretch the skin until it was at the almost at the breaking point but it wouldn't break uh, at which point you would have you know a skin and you'd cut it open and pour it out and you'd have the wine to drink or whatever um and of course you'd have a skin that you could left over that you could use for for as a water skin or whatever it happened to be but he says you know if you if you were to then put more new wine to that same skin it would obviously burst it wouldn't be able to hold it so jesus says of the church he says you don't put new wine into old wineskins. Speaking of the new spirit he's given the church and the scribes and the Pharisees being the old wineskins. So again, he's calling his apostles. He's giving new authority because he's, he's prepping new wineskins for the new wine, so to speak. Um, so infallibly again, refers to matters of faith and morals, not personal actions. Peter himself sins. It doesn't mean he's, he's, he's impeccable or sinless um, in multiple places. Paul even calls him out on it, right? Um, but it belongs to the, the church when she teaches infallibly, either in a church council or through an ex-cathedra statement of the Pope. And the Pope says, acting as the successor of Peter, I hereby declare. There's not actually many times. There's, there's between two and like 15 times that's happened, depending upon if you want to judge uh, a Pope convoking or or ratifying a, a church council. So if you want to count those, then it's, it's a much higher number. But there's only been two actual ex-cathedra statements from a Pope. Uh, and those were really in the last couple hundred years. Uh, generally speaking, it's just a preeminent authority he has to to lead the church. Um, and there's that new wineskins reference right there. So um, that being said, we can also see from scripture and from history that the church has a hierarchy, right? There are people in different offices in the church. Jesus uses that word ecclesia twice in the New Testament, uh, the word for church, and it demonstrates that he intends a visible, unified, hierarchical, and authoritative church. The church is composed of bishops, priests, and deacons. Bishops are, in Christ's church, the, the bishops, it's a Greek word, episkopoi, which means the overseers. They're the direct successor of the apostles. You're going to hear my kids in the background. <laughs> uh, the bishops can trace their authority conferred to them back to the apostles. We see them referenced in a couple different places. Um, here's just a couple of spots we see them in the scriptures. Also, priests, uh, the, the the Greek word, presbyteroi, it just got 
uh, truncated in, in old English to priest. That's where we get the word priest from. Um, the presbyters, the, the priests, uh, also served also, oftentimes you'll see it translated as elders of the church, uh, who serve the bishop and do, uh, they help the bishop to, to minister to the church and then the deacons, uh, which we see very clearly, uh, in Acts, uh, is it five or six? A bunch of deacons are chosen, uh, including St. Stephen, who's, of course, the first Christian martyr. Uh, he was one of the, uh, the, the deacons chosen who was then stoned to death and who calls out and says, uh, talks about Father Abraham, right? Um, and we see this is kind of a, it's, it's kind of a neat, uh, parallel. Uh, I sometimes point this out, sometimes don't. Um, you know, the old, the old Testament, I, I, you'll hear me say this oftentimes. It's actually a quote from St. Augustine. He says something along the lines of, it's often translated in a rhyming way. Um, in the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. In the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. And so that you'll see this echoing of the New Testament and the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, um, all the things that happen in it are explained in some way or, or made more fully, more manifest in the New Testament. So we had uh, three levels of priesthood in the Old Testament. We had the high priest, which was Aaron and his sons, his successors. Uh, the ministerial priests, which were Aaron's sons, and also the, the Levites. And then we had the universal priesthood. Israel was called the, the a kingdom of priests, right? So literally, they had... They, they all exercised a kind of priesthood just by being a member of that covenant. Well, in the New Testament, we have a high priest in Jesus. And then we have the ministerial priests, which are the ordained bishops and priests in communion with uh, the Pope. And then, of course, we have the universal priesthood, which is all of us. You know, we're all called, in a sense, to be priests to the world. We are all called to evangelize the world. So um, the apostles and their successors, they all held an office. We've already kind of discussed this uh, offices outlast the office holder, um, which is why um, you would see things like, again, in, in Acts 1, they, they appoint a successor to Judas. It was just, uh, it was a given. Um, and to make sure the apostolic tradition will be passed on uh, after the death, Paul tells Timothy, he references like four generations, what you have heard from me before many witnesses entrust to other men who will be able to teach others also. So literally he's, he's speaking about four levels of succession. Uh, Timothy, of course, being a, a bishop uh, as well in, in the church. Uh, so the implication of this is this. First off, there's only one church. Uh, it's existed in an unbroken form since the very beginning of the church. Throughout history, different groups have split off because they wished to assert their own understandings of things as opposed to the churches. We call these uh, heretics. The word heretic just is a Greek word, hereomai, uh, which means to choose. They fundamentally deny certain core doctrines, doctrine, uh, doctrinal issues, and then they lose, of course, some or even all sacraments. Traditionally, Protestants have been looked at heretic, looked at as heretics because they have chosen to separate themselves from Christ's church. However, this was more in reference to the early um, Protestant reformers, people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, all these guys who left the church with much more of an understanding of what they were doing. Today, the church would would seldom have ever speak of, of someone from a Protestant background as being a heretic, precisely because they just grew up in their faith, right? They didn't make a choice. There was no choice. They didn't ever choose to leave. So I'm always, you know, I, I give you this word just so you can be familiar with it. You'll hear people speak about a heretic. That's what a heretic is. Uh, somebody who's chosen to deny a fundamental doctrinal issue. Um, 
and we do we we will um, contrast this with people who are schismatic or who cut off from the church, and they they tend to deny what are arguably secondary concerns, and thus they re- retain um, valid sacraments. The Eastern Orthodox Church and all the other churches from them are essentially in schism with the Catholic Church. They split over various religious and political reasons around 1054, um, arguably over whether the the Pope had the authority to insert the filioque clause into the Nicene Creed, which is that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and the son filio que is a latin phrase that means and the son and of course i read earlier in john 20 where jesus breathed on the, on the apostles and he gives them the holy spirit uh when he gives them the ability to forgive sin so clearly that the holy spirit proceeds from the father and the son uh, but uh they use that as kind of the 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 breaking point uh so the the fruits of this the practical upshot is again today there's arguably over 33,000 different denominations, most of them Protestant, each one claiming to have a correct interpretation of scripture and to possess the most correct version of truth, or more problematically, uh, denying that truth even exists. And uh, that is a, is, a, is a terrible, terrible thing. Um, So all that has set up a concept that has been taught uh, in the church and is still a teaching of the church and is in fact a true statement. Uh, but I always want to give it some clarification because people oftentimes wonder what it means. In Latin, it's extra ecclesium nulla salus, which means outside of the church, there is no salvation. This comes from the writings of St. Cyprian of Carthage, who was a bishop in the third century. And the axiom is often used as a shorthand uh, for the doctrine of the church uh, both Catholic and Orthodox both assert that the church is absolutely necessary for salvation. The theological basis for this doctrine is founded on the Catholic belief that Jesus personally establishes a church, um, according to that, uh, as it was been over in, in Matthew 16, and that the church serves as the means by which the graces won by Christ are communicated to believers primarily through those sacraments. However, uh, there have been certain interpretations of this throughout history, um, and the church does teach dogmatically that salvation may yet be attained by those who are not, for lack of a better term, card-carrying members of the Catholic Church. So uh, it's very possible to call yourself Catholic and yet not go to heaven. St. Paul speaks about being disqualified, which means being qualified at one point and then ceasing to be qualified. Um, you know, if you, you fall into heresy, you actually see this in Hebrews 4, 6, I think it is as well. Um, so there's definitely places in Scripture uh, where we hear about uh, people having the faith and then falling away, even the parable of the seeds that Jesus gives that fall in the path and the rocky soil and everything else, right? So clearly it's possible to receive the gospel and then fall into heresy. So being a card king member of the Catholic Church does not mean that everyone who is Catholic is going to go to heaven. Um, so it's it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. But it also doesn't, by natural extension, mean that everybody who... Um, is not Catholic is, is damned to hell. And this is something the church has, uh, has spoken of very clearly in part because people who don't have sufficient knowledge, they're, they're not morally culpable. They're not responsible for their lack of knowledge. Now they're not going to be as well off. They're going to be missing grace, missing the sacraments. Um, they would have a better life inside of the church. Every Christian who is a Christian would be a better Christian, uh, if they were Catholic, uh, and truly Catholic. And that doesn't mean that every person who is Catholic is, is a great person by any means. Cause again, we're all, it's a, it's a, it's a hospital for sinners, not a mansion for saints. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, 
salvation is possible. It's it, so even even somebody who's not a Christian could potentially be saved. And so somebody who's never heard of Jesus, but who's spent their life following, let's say, Buddhism, right? That they would not be saved. And this is simply expressing the possibility of salvation. Um, and this is rooted in a lot of different things. We we see in 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 First Peter three, Jesus descends into hell and preaches to those who were disobedient in the days of Noah. So these are sinners who were blotted off the face of the earth, right? Um, so if he can do that, then he can make salvation available to anybody. That doesn't mean that one would be saved by being a Buddhist or a Shintoist or Taoist or, or Muslim or Hindu or, you know, whatever it happened to be. Uh, but it does mean that, you know, those people, and it's a real liberality in Catholicism too. We can accept that those people have some truth, right? Anybody who says there is a God has some truth. And if they say, well, you know, the God is, there's only one God, you know, that's better than saying there's many gods and saying the God of Abraham is the one true God. That would be uh, us Christians, also the Jews and also the Muslims um, who we, we kind of view as like our um, kind of like cousins in the faith, I guess, for lack of a better term, they do seek to worship the God of Abraham. They're mistaken on who he is. Uh, and of course the ramifications of that are dire at times. Um, but we still view them as, uh, you know, monotheists seeking to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or rather the, the God of Abraham. They, they, they follow uh, lineage from Abraham through his son, uh, Ishmael, uh, who was uh, the son of a servant, uh, Hagar. Um, that's neither here nor there. Incidentally, uh, the whole mentality of Islam is one of submission and slavery. Like literally, I mean, and I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative way necessarily. Uh, literally, the, the word Islam means uh, submission and Muslim means one who submits. So literally, it is an entire religion built upon this kind of slavery mentality, as opposed to the idea of being sons and daughters of the king, which is the Christian mentality, which is one that is much more free uh, and, and much more uh, gracious. So here's some scriptures to kind of uh, sum everything up, and then I will go ahead and bring this video to a close. I'm going to go ahead and read through all of these uh, because I put them here for a reason. First off, the church is one. I'm going to pause for just a second. The church is one. Jesus says, Father, I pray that they may be one even as you and I are one. St. Paul writes to the Philippians, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any solace in love, any participation in the spirit, any compassion and mercy, complete my joy by being of the same mind with the same love, united in heart and thinking one thing. He says in the Romans, uh, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves uh, as you follow Jesus Christ, so that with one heart and one mouth you may glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says to the Ephesians, I, then a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live in a manner worthy of the call you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another through love, striving to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. One body, one Spirit, as you are called to be, to the one hope of your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, <coughs> Part number two, factions and nominations are never part of the plan. Uh, this is a uh, comic, is a Catholic comic, and uh, it, it presents a couple of uh, major Protestant reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Ulrich uh, Zwingli. Uh, so Martin Luther says, Martin, the church is one. Why do you sow divisions with your teaching? And he says, I do no such thing. I am uniting the true church by restoring the pure and undefiled gospel truth. And then Calvin Peeks in says, defiled my bleep. I've seen diapers less polluted than their nonsense that you wrote on the sacraments. And then Luther says, 
Calvin, you don't have a th- don't you have a theocracy to run somewhere in you Swiss beanpole? Because of course Martin Luther uh, caught on very much in in uh, Germany, Calvin in Switzerland, uh, and then Zwingli over here as well. Uh, all right, let's take a break for lunch. Hey guys, want some sausages? And they both say, "Scram it, Zwingli!" So the joke here is is literally the the reformers all sought to reform the church. They they there were excesses. There were problems in the church, um, to be sure. And they all sought to unite the true church and restore the the church. That's what the word reformation means, to reform the church. But none of them could agree on what that looked like, which is why you literally had um, hundreds of, of different denominations in the first hundred years of the church. And now, again, potentially thousands of denominations, even if it's off by an order of a thousand, and it's 30 or 300 denominations, that's still 300 different people teaching falsely, uh, at least all but one, what the truth is. And none of them existed more than 500 years ago. It's, well, just over 500 years ago. Uh, in, uh, 2017 was the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's uh, 95 theses uh, being nailed to the door of the church in Wittenberg, which started off essentially the the Reformation. So factions, denominations, they were never part of the plan. Um, Jesus says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Uh, Paul says, I hear there's divisions among you, and in part I believe it, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Um, he says this, the, in Galatians, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, effeminacy, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in 2 Corinthians, he says, I'm afraid that when I come, I will not find you as I want you to be, and that you may not find me as you want me to be. He's kind of threatening there. I fear there's going to be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts, anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. So this was never part of the plan. Uh, there was never meant to be factions. There was never meant to be denominations. Um, people following, well, I, I follow what uh, what... Martin Luther teaches, I follow what Calvin teaches, I follow what Zwingli teaches, I follow what whoever teaches, right? And literally, um, this right here is is a, a, let me see if I can make this bigger. Um, this is a history of reformers. This is just some of the big ones, right? Um, let me move myself. Ah, shoot. This does this sometimes. i got to drag like five of them over here. Hang on a second. I almost never move this once it gets started because it does this for whatever reason. There we go. Um, so what is the history of your church? Uh, and even if you look in, in like a secular almanac, if you see the Catholic church, it'll say founded by Jesus Christ in 33 AD. The Orthodox church has broke off in 1054 from some schismatic Catholic bishops, uh, particularly in Constantinople. The Lutherans, 517 Martin Luther, Anabaptist, 521 Nicholas Storch and Thomas Munzer. The Anglican Rite, or the Anglican Church, was Henry VIII, uh, defender of the faith at one point, but he broke off because he wanted to be able to get a divorce and, and remarry. Uh, the Mennonites, the Calvinists, John Calvin, Presbyterians, John Knox, um, and just going on down, you know, the Mormons, Joseph Smith. One of these actually, I grew up in Topeka, Kansas, and it was the um, what is it? The the Pentecostals actually started. Charles Parkham started in Philip in in Topeka, Kansas, in 1901. So literally, you know, all of these different people are breaking off and starting their own uh, denominations and, and teaching their own things because they firmly believe that what they're teaching is true, but they can't all be true, and all of them are usually following the fa- teacher or founder who isn't Jesus Christ and the apostles, uh, and that is just a real pop. Um, fathers know best. So this is what the early church had to say. I already read you that quote from Ignatius earlier, uh, where he talked about, um, where the 
where the bishop is there was the Catholic Church, right? Uh, this is don't celebrate the Eucharist without a bishop, right? That's literally what he's saying. You can't do that. It's not permissive. Where, wherever the bishop is, there's the Eucharist that's celebrated validly. Uh, just, you know, wherever the people are, wherever the bishop is, there's the people just as wherever, uh, wherever. You, you can go back and read it again. I can scroll up and read it again. Uh, here we go. We'll just do it really quickly. Um, let no one do anything of concern to the church without the bishop. Let that be considered a valid Eucharist that is celebrated by the bishop or one who ordains. Wherever the bishop appears, let the people be just as wherever Jesus is, there is the Catholic Church. That's that quote. Should scroll down here. There you go. Um, so uh, Clement of Rome, this is writing in around 80 AD. He was actually one of the successors of Peter. Uh, so he's actually Pope Clement of Rome. Um, he writes this throughout the countryside. And this is, this is the oppressed church. Remind you, you know, for the first 300 years of Christianity, it was illegal to be Christian. This was an oppressed church living underground, uh, writing these things. So they weren't writing these things to gain worldly power, right? They were writing these things to keep the church in order throughout the countryside and the city, the apostles preached and they appointed their earliest converts, testing them by the spirit to be deacons, uh, or to be bishops and deacons of future believers. Nor was this a novelty for bishops and deacons had been written about a long time earlier. Our apostles knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that there would be strife for the office of bishop. And for this reason, therefore, having received perfect, perfect foreknowledge, they appointed those who have already been mentioned and afterwards added the further provision that if they should die, other approved men should succeed their ministry. So he is literally speaking about what we call apostolic succession, right? the succession of, of people from the apostles to those they appointed in, in an unbroken line. That's what apostolic succession means. It means literally, uh, if you were to look at any particular bishop in the Catholic church today, you can trace them back to one of the apostles. Um, Bishop Irenaeus of Lyons, uh, as I said before, the church having received this preaching and this faith, although she is disseminated throughout the whole world, yet she guarded it as if she occupied one house. She likewise believes these things just as if she had but one soul and one and the same heart, as if she possessed one mouth. For while the languages of the world are diverse, nevertheless, the authority of the tradition is one and the same. He wrote this against heresies uh, around 189 AD. It's possible, he continues uh, elsewhere uh, in that same book, it's possible then for everyone in every church who may wish to know the truth to contemplate the tradition of the apostles, which have been made known throughout the whole world. And we are in a position to enumerate those who were instituted as bishops by the apostles and their successors to our own time. Men who neither knew or taught anything like what these heretics in modern times rave about. They're the Succession of bishops of the greatest and most ancient church known to all, founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, that church which has the tradition and the faith which comes down to us after having been announced to men by the apostles, with this church because of its superior origin, all churches must agree. That is, all the faithful in the whole world, and it is in her that the faithful everywhere have maintained the apostolic tradition. That's a slam dunk. This is written, this is the persecuted church, <laughs> you know, and he's writing to combat heresies. And he's literally saying, you know, here, the church founded in Rome by Peter and Paul with that one church uh, headed up by, by Peter's successor is the one that everyone needs to agree with. And this is, again, this is before Constantine in 325 or 322-ish, 317-ish, whatever it was, before he made Christianity legal. This is over a, a century before that. Uh, Tertullian writes this in about the year 200, just a little bit after that, again, against heretics. If there's any heresies that are bold enough to plant their origin in the midst of the apostolic age, that they may thereby seem to have been handed down by the apostles because they existed in the time of the apostles, 
we can say, let them produce the original records of their churches. Let them unfold the role of their bishops running down in due succession from the beginning in such a manner that their first bishop shall be able to show for his ordainer and predecessor some one of the apostles or of the apostolic men, a man, moreover, who continued steadfast with the apostles. For this is the manner in which the apostolic churches transmit their registers, as the church of Smyrna, which records that Polycarp was placed therein by John, and also the church of Rome, which makes Clement the former mentioned Clement to have been ordained in a like manner by Peter in a demur against the heretics. Uh, and of course, St. Augustine of Hippo uh, says this, and I love this. Now this is actually, of course, of course, after uh, Christianity is legal, uh, but he speaks very highly of the Catholic church and his love for it. And he says this, there's many things which most properly keep me in the Catholic church's bosom here. He uses the word her, but he uses the word Catholic below. He's speaking about the Catholic church uh, that keeps me in the Catholic church's bosom. The unanimity uh, there was, sorry, the unan unanimity of the peoples and the nations keeps me here. Her authority, inaugurated by miracles, nourished by hope, augmented by love, and confirmed by her age, her age in 397 AD, let alone how we should feel about her in, in 2019, uh, her age keeps me here. The succession of the priests from the very sea of the apostle Peter, to whom the Lord, after his resurrection, gave the charge of feeding a sheep up to the present episcopate, the present bishops keeps me here and lastly the very name catholic which not without reason belongs to this church alone in the face of so many heretics so much so that although all heretics want to be called catholic when a stranger inquires where the catholic church meets none of the heretics would dare to point out his own basilica house. So in a nutshell, there we have a basic overview of why we as Catholics believe that the Catholic Church is in fact the church that Jesus founded, uh, that has existed throughout time in an unbroken chain of succession, uh, and kind of begins to explain why things went wrong when people started to break away from the church and they lost that firm foundation. In the next class, I'll do class seven next. Uh, probably it'll be a little bit of time before I get up there. My voice is about to give out on me today and it's the end of the day. Um, but I'll try and get that to you as soon as possible. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about scripture and tradition and, you know, why, why this happened right here. Why the, the reformation kind of, uh, exploded, right? Why, why that happened. So anyway, let me know if you have any questions. Feel free to comment down below the video, uh, or feel free to email me if you have an email. Um, obviously the person I'm filming this for is going to have the email, but I'm going to make this available more generally to people. Uh, so if you have my email, feel free to, to reach out to me that way. Um, that being the case, God bless you and you're in my prayers. Bye bye.